You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It is quickly becoming one of the preferred authentication methods. I don't have to remember what was the four-digit PIN I set on my phone for that account versus what was my login and password versus my chip and PIN. Now I can use voice as that single authentication method across all those interactions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Mark Horn. He is Chief Marketing Officer at Pindrop, and we're going to be talking about voice authentication. All right, Joe, we've got, uh, before we get to our stories here, yep. we've got some uh, follow-up here. We've actually got two bits of follow-up. Tell you, why don't I do the first one, and then you can take the second one. Okay. So uh, the first one comes from a listener named Nick, who says, in the latest episode, Business Fishing, Who's Biting the Bait? Neither of you were sure what the play was for the catch of the day. This was re- last episode. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. Nick says, this was definitely a crypto scam. I only know this because I nearly fell for one of these, as much as I am ashamed to admit, since I am very security conscious. Don't be ashamed to admit it, Nick. (laughs) The security, or rather, the structure of the scam was identical to what was described. They are supposedly some young, beautiful woman from somewhere in Asia, currently living in some big U.S. city like New York. It starts off where they accidentally sent an SMS message to you by mistake, They make a lot of small talk with an occasional mention of how they're trading thousands of dollars in crypto, but they're not pushy about it. They'll eventually ask to move to another platform like WhatsApp or Telegram. Uh If you happen to ask about their crypto, that's when they start to hook you in. They will tell you that they will share their trading methods that can make you thousands. They will first have you sign up for one of the major crypto trading platforms to perhaps make this appear legitimate. Really? After you do that, they will suddenly tell you they are not using that platform anymore and direct you to some other lesser-known platform to buy crypto. Aha! Once you do that, they will tell you to transfer the crypto to another platform (laughs) called 78EX. This is supposedly where all the magic will happen. Right. I'll bet it's just their wallets. But this is not a legitimate platform in the slightest. (laughs) To install this app on iOS, you need to install a developer profile, which will sideload the app. Really? Well, that's about as red a flag as there you can be, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) Actually, Nick says, this is where the bells and whistles started going off. Yep, yep, yep. This this. This doesn't need to be this complex. He says, after Googling this app, I found a lot of stories from people that had the same experience I did. This is where I stopped and immediately blocked this person. But from other stories I read, once you transfer any crypto to this platform, it's gone. You're not getting it back. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, It doesn't need to be that complex. You don't need to have a side-loaded app. You just need to have a fake website where you let people create accounts and then give them wallet addresses that are that you're in control of because if you think of any of these big crypto exchanges mm-hmm. right they all manage their own wallets you have to deposit crypto in them and trust that they're going to keep account of it yeah right yeah if that trust is misplaced there's nothing stopping like say uh coinbase uh from just saying 
see you guys later and taking their big, <laughs> their, you know, their big bags of money and heading off to Tahiti. Right. I mean, the only thing that's stopping them, of course, is regulation and the fact that this is a business and it's, the Coinbase is completely legitimate. <laughs> but it is within their power to do that, just like it's within the power of any bank to just abscond with all your money. But there's ramifications for things that happen like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. These guys are obviously playing the long game. But if you wanted to set up Dave's bank on the corner of right out here in beautiful uh, uh, Maple Lawn, yeah. which used to be called Skaggsville, <laughs> as you like to point out, uh, and you said Dave's bank and you could convince people to come in and deposit money, then then you could just take off with it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're committing a crime, but... <laughs> It may come to that. Maybe that may be my retirement plan. <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> One day, you and I will have to talk about what my retirement plan is. Okay, it's 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 pretty funny. All right. So thanks to Nick for writing in and providing that clarification for us. Uh, we got another listener who wrote in. Joe, why don't you read us this one? All right. This one comes from Michael, who writes, "Hi, Dave and Joe. I have a bit of feedback I'd like to share about episode one ninety four, the dark side of business email attacks, as well as a bit of insight." In this episode, Joe speaks about mystery shoppers and how companies don't really do this anymore. Maybe the practice has reduced with the number of online stores available now, but companies definitely still do this. We have a family friend who facilitates training of retail staff that asked my wife if she would like to be a mystery shopper. No gift cards involved, I promise. <laughs> the interesting part is that these mystery shoppers are given a set of directives, things they need to do and then rate. One of these directives is to be a difficult customer and to see how staff respond and manage the situation. Mm -hmm. So my wife is telling me all this, and as she's doing that, I'm thinking, this sounds an awful lot like a customer service equivalent of a penetration test or vulnerability scanning. Hmm. These mystery shoppers go out and look for weaknesses in how customer-facing staff engage, respond, and manage customer interaction. And that information is reported back to management. And in the case of this, this family friend, they can highlight the gaps and recommend training and improvements. I just found it somewhat enlightening that if you look hard enough, you can make these connections between cyber slash information security practice and something completely different. Uh, that's mm -hmm. an interesting observation. Yeah. I, I completely agree. There's a lot of things that go on um, that in, in the cyber world that have real-world equivalents. Mm -hmm. And this— I think that's a valid comparison that that a mystery shopper is essentially a vulnerability scan of your of your customer facing organization. Yeah. I'm glad to hear they're still doing it. Perhaps I'm wrong about how frequent it happens. All right, well our thanks to uh, Michael for sending that in. Very interesting stuff indeed. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a comment for us or something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's dig into our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, who are some of your favorite actors? Oh, gosh. Uh, let's see. I like Emma Thompson a lot. I, I like Emma Thompson, too. Uh, the great Meryl Streep, of course. Oh, magnificent. Uh, Morgan Freeman has never disappointed me. Morgan Freeman, I love his voice. All the way back to Easy Reader on The Electric Company. On The Electric Company. I remember Morgan Freeman on The Electric <laughs> right. Company when I was That's a kid. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I, you know, I think it's a solid list. Yeah. My, solid, my top three— are and uh, you and I and Rick Howard have had this conversation, and Rick says it's a weird top three to have. Okay, but my top three are Kathy Bates, yeah, Morgan good. Freeman, yeah, oh, and yeah, Brad Pitt. Okay, right, yeah, solid, so yeah. I like and I have my reasons for them, but mainly because these three actors have done a lot of transition between uh comedy and drama. Okay, and I think drama is easy to do and comedy is very hard to do. So okay. if somebody can make the transition between the two. 
Uh, and Brad Pitt's comedy is all like dark comedies, mm-hmm. you know, like Locks uh, or not Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. What's the Snatch, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic movie. Okay. Um, uh, and then uh, Burn After Reading, which <laughs> is a great movie as well. Uh, but they're dark comedies. Okay. Uh, but if I had to pick another actor who kind of does this bridging the gap, he doesn't hasn't bridged a lot of comedy gaps lately. Yeah. Right? But he's still one of my favorite actors. Is Keanu Reeves. Okay. Okay? Because if you think about all the way back to Bill and Ted, mm-hmm. right? And then all the way up to like the Matrix and the trilogies and, and all the other things, the Matrix trilogy, all the other things he's done, uh, you know, the 47 Ronin. I, I really like him. Yeah. He's really good. He's a great action movie star as well. Mm. I'd like to see him do more comedy. I'd like to see him branch out into that. Mm. But, uh, oh, I also love his comic book, Berserker, which is not for kids, by the way, but it's a, <laughs> it's a great storyline. Okay. Uh, but I, I do all this gushing about Keanu Reeves because KTLA out in Southern California has a story about a woman named Pamela Landers. Okay. Who was targeted by a romance scammer pretending to be Keanu Reeves. Oh, and it started with a text message. And there's some interesting things uh, that go on in the video along with the article. Yeah, mm. There's an article, but the video is actually better to watch. Okay. Uh, the first thing that's that's important to note is that these scammers took weeks, weeks to prep Miss Landers. Hmm. Okay? Uh, at, after they had been uh, impersonating Keanu Reeves for, for this period of time, they begin the conversation and they ask, well, what's your net worth? I don't know if this was a, a red flag to Ms. Landers, but she told them it was she was worth about four hundred thousand okay. dollars, which may or may not be accurate. I don't know. So at this point, does she, it's in some part of her brain, believe that she's really interacting with Keanu Reeves? I think by this point, it doesn't really say in the article. But my impression is, or from the story, but my impression is that once he starts asking about her net worth, she starts having red flags go off. But there was a point in this where she thought maybe she was. Um, yes. Interacting with Keanu Reeves. Okay. That's correct. So they were convincing enough in that. They that, were convincing she... enough in that. And that's um, okay. where I'm going to go eventually with this. Okay. So you're reading ahead, Dave. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> uh, but one of the reasons is she's an accountant. Yeah. Right? And when this guy asks for money, she immediately thinks, what does Keanu Reeves, who's worth more than $300 million, need with my money? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my $400,000 is four orders of magnitude less than his money. Okay. Why would he need that? Right. Right? So that is the big stop right there. Yeah. Now, I will say this. Ms. Landers is steeped in the world of finance, being an accountant. Right. Right? So this makes absolute sense to her. That, that, or this, this is the, this makes no sense to her is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Uh, and I don't know why I said it the other way, but I did. Uh, and, and because of her career, this stood out as something that's completely wrong and just off the wall crazy. Yeah. But if she wasn't an accountant, she may have been susceptible to this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Ms. Landers turned out to be a pretty big, a pretty bad target because of that. Uh, and then at some point in time, she's in the, in the interview saying, people don't fall in love like this, right? It just hmm. doesn't happen. People generally meet. Nobody falls in love over text. Maybe one person does, but two people generally don't, hmm. which is another bit, good bit of, uh, of awareness on her part. Mm-hmm. So she did not fall victim to the scam, but she was targeted by somebody pretending to be uh, Keanu Reeves. Now, in the interview, the reporter is talking to her and says, it's nice to be courted, and this is important. This is what I thought was the, the most 
salient point here. She goes, oh, it was wonderful. Hmm. Right? Yeah. That's the, the part of this that makes everything work. Mm-hmm. is that she was being courted and she openly admits and says now that it was a, the most wonderful part of the experience. Even going so far as to say, looking back through the text, she still remembers how she felt about it and how much she liked it. Yeah. And another thing she says is that if you have any kind of emptiness inside of you, these guys are going to find it and hmm. they're going to exploit it. Hmm. So first off, I want to express, express my gratitude to Pamela Landers for coming forward with the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they make the point in this story all the time that people are scammed in romance scams and they don't come forward because they're too embarrassed. Right. Now, Mrs. Landers wasn't scammed, but still, coming forward and saying these things that, yes, it was wonderful when they were paying attention to me. Mm-hmm. That is key. And then saying that these guys are going to find your vulnerabilities and exploit them. Yeah. That is key as well. Mm-hmm. Those are two key points. Right? It's mm-hmm. wonderful, and they're going to exploit you. Uh, KTLA said that they could not get in touch with Keanu Reeves, but <laughs> surprise, right? Keanu Reeves could not be reached for comment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I tried to reach Keanu Reeves for this. He didn't respond to me either. <laughs> well, there you go. Right. But his publicist did release a statement that says, Keanu Reeves does not participate in any form of social media, nor has he ever done so in the past, nor plan to do so in the future. If anyone tries to contact you via social media claiming to be him, it is a fraud. <laughs> Right. That's just one more reason to admire Keanu Reeves. Yeah. I wish I could be more like him. You know, (laughs) every now and then I I have these these scams that may work on me, Dave. Yeah. This one might work on me because I'm a big fan of Keanu Reeves. Oh, I see. Yeah, a little romance scam from Keanu Reeves. Right. Well, actually, I would be like, Keanu Reeves, I love your comic book, right? And then— Okay. Because that's, you know, it's— Right, a bromance between you and Keanu. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you remember the time that I, I said Kevin Smith re- re- replied to one of my tweets or liked one of my tweets? Yep. And how much I was like, oh, Kevin Smith liked yeah. my tweet. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I was uh, I was on fire. It feels it. great. It does. Yeah, it do- and that's what happened to Miss Landers. That's right. Do you remember the Landers sisters back in the 70s? I think it was Aud- Audrey and Judy Landers. They were I... regulars on the love boat, I think. Oh, I think of... I vaguely remember. They were blonde girls, yeah, blonde women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, quite attractive, quite shapely in a 70s exploitative kind of way. Right, but, yeah. uh, you know, like they, if, if, uh, if they needed uh, a damsel in distress for Knight Rider or BJ and the Bear, like you could always <laughs> count on the Lander sisters to show up and, and have some sort of romantic intrigue with the, the lead male in the... That, you know, that was the part they played back then. Anyway, yes. yeah, that's what Landers made me think of. And now we'll get back on track. <laughs> <laughs> now all I'm thinking about is an orangutan and BJ and the Bear. <laughs> it was a little chimpanzee. Was it a chimp? Oh, yeah. uh, the orangutan was in uh, Every Which Way But Lose, That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, uh, interesting story. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, My story this week uh, comes from the folks over at Netscope. They just released some uh, research uh, they are a um, edge computing security and zero trust uh, organization. All right. Um, and they released some research that was tracking um, phishing downloads. And they have tracked uh, phishing downloads having a sharp increase. They said 450% over the past year. Really? Yeah. And what they're saying is that the attackers are using SEO techniques, search engine optimization, mm-hmm. to improve the ranking of their malicious files, particularly PDF files. Really? Mm-hmm. So um, if you go looking for 
particular types of uh, of files. And and they said in this in this article they talked about um, like shareware. Uh, of course, we all we know that um, if you're looking for like pirated software, you know, like that's right. that's always that's going to have malware in it. Like I mean, count on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's it's like the oldest vector in the book. Yeah, you know. Yeah, the other thing they talked about was uh, how the malware folks or the folks who are doing the phishing are becoming more and more targeted. Um, that the servers tend to be in the region where the people they're targeting are. So if you're in North America, the downloads are going to come from a North American server. Right. Just it, it draws less attention to it. It does. It seems less suspicious to any automated filtering systems. Yeah. And to you as a as a as the victim, the target. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple key points here I thought were highlighted worth highlighting. They said uh, Trojans continue to prove effective. He said Trojans account for 77% of all cloud and web malware downloads as attackers use social engineering techniques to gain an initial foothold and to deliver a variety of next-stage payloads. You know, Dave, I'm kind of a stickler for vocabulary. Yeah. Uh, and especially in malware. Yeah. And the old Trojan uh, term, yeah. I'll say. The Trojan horse. Right. Is yeah. based on the Trojan horse right. theory of you have a piece of software that you believe to be beneficial, but it is actually malicious. Right. And that has always had some kind of a social engineering component to it. Yeah. You know, somebody says, here, try this, and they run it. You run it, and it, it works. I, I've always been leery of calling these things viruses because they're not viruses. Oh. They're they're Trojans. You know, mm. it's I, and I like the term malware. That gives us a nice broad term to cover all these different different yeah. topics. Yeah. But I, I like, I mean, these. I think this Trojan is, uh, this word Trojan here is being used aptly. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably correct. These people probably believe that they're downloading something. Right. I would I would qualify a uh, malicious PDF, kind of like a Trojan horse kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you think you're getting something, but there's actually some JavaScript or some other malicious exploit in the background or mm-hmm. malicious code. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. I, did I derail you there? No, no, no. It's okay. fine. I, it's it's a good point. Uh, a couple of other points they make here. They say cloud and web are an attacker's perfect pair. They say 47% of malware downloads originate from cloud apps uh, compared to 53% from traditional websites. Yeah, this makes sense. That's going to continue to shift in that direction of being more cloud app. Right. I think. They say popular cloud storage apps continue to be the source of most cloud malware downloads. Again, right. makes total sense. If yep. I can host my file on... Dropbox or AWS or whatever. Drive, SkyDrive. What's it called now? Microsoft Drive, whatever it is. Yeah, Google well, Drive. yeah, because those servers are less likely to be flagged right. as being problematic because chances are they're legit stuff that right. you when need you to, to get to them. When you go to Dropbox, you know you're going to Dropbox. Right, right. Other interesting note here, they said Microsoft Office malware files have declined to pre-Emotet levels. Um, Yeah, so they said EXE and DLL files account for nearly half of all malware downloads as attackers continue to target Microsoft Windows while malicious Microsoft Office files are on the decline. Um, And they say that's probably due to uh, the last years of proactive warnings and security controls that are looking for this very thing uh, from some of the big vendors like Google and Microsoft. You know, Dave, as I think back on my career... And, yeah. and I don't do a lot of programming in Microsoft environments, right? Right. Like I don't do, I mean, I do, but I mean, I don't do office programming. Yeah. I've never written a macro professionally. Okay. Right? I've never had the need to do it. Sure. Um, but by the same token, 
I have very, very, very rarely found a, an office, a legitimate office file from Excel or from uh, Word that ever required macros. Very mm-hmm. rarely. I think, in fact, I can only think of one spreadsheet that had a macro on it that I had to enable macros for mm-hmm. in the entire time, I, in my entire career. Yeah. Uh, so when I think of these mac, this macro uh, vector, which requires a lot of social engineering as well because people have to say, hey, you got to turn on macros to see what's going on. Right. That uh, just lets the, the malicious code execute. Yeah. Uh, I'm always skeptical of that. I'm always immediately that's a that's a huge red flag for me because I know that this, again, is also a very old means of putting malicious code on your computer. Yeah. And I, I wonder, you know, are there particular industry verticals that rely on macros for there their day-to-day? Day? If you're an accountant or if you're, a, I don't know, you know, some kind of engineer or an architect or, you know, I'm sure there are yeah. business types where macros are just part of everyday use of these tools. Yep. Uh, and maybe, I, and I just don't happen to be one of them. Yeah, I don't happen to be one of them. I, I, you know, maybe our listeners, you know, we have listeners who write in all the time. Maybe our right. listeners will write in and tell us uh, a use case or a, a story about a use case where they needed to use a macro for a document. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the point is that if you are one of those folks, you need to be extra vigilant because that's an extra vulnerability that, that you have there. Yep. So hopefully they're aware of that and can put in the proper mitigations to take care of themselves. All right. Well, again, uh, that is from the folks over at Netscope. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, we have two catch of the days today because they're short. Okay. And the first one comes from Peter who writes, I already have enough free Dyson vacuums, so I'll let you guys have this one. You're welcome. All right. That from email address, though, am I right? Ha <laughs> and, and the from is, it's, it's the email says, from Dyson Vacuum. And then it, it's like account.uhcgotrs underscore 03 at some domain. Yeah. Right? Obviously, not anybody at Dyson. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and then it says, the email has one sentence. Congrats, you've been selected. And that's just one big link in the middle of the email. That's right? it? That's it. That's the email. <laughs> and if you okay. hover over the link, it goes to an S3 bucket on Amazon uh, cloud services, Amazon mm. web services. Okay. Uh, I didn't click on this link because I was afraid it might be associated with Peter's email. So, Peter, you're welcome back here. Uh, <laughs> the... I'm I'm sure that this is some kind of scam where they just collect your information. Maybe maybe say, okay, all you have to do is pay for shipping, and you never get your Dysons. No, your Dyson. No, I guess people are lured in by a premium product. That's correct. Dyson certainly is. Yep. Yeah. Uh, all right. What's the other one? The other one I found on the internet somewhere. I can't remember where I found this. Probably Reddit, but it's um, it's a, a some kind of either text message, uh, chat or or Facebook Messenger, some kind of messaging application. Yeah. And um. Why don't you go ahead and read this, Dave? It says, This is Vladimir Putin, president of Russia. Some people kidnapped me and put my duplicate in Russia. I didn't start the war. He did. I escaped and now hiding in your country. Can you send me 3,000 RS so I can go back to Russia and stop this war? This is real me. I can send selfie. <laughs> and then he sends, he sends a, a selfie. Sure enough, Vladimir Putin. Well, I'm convinced. Yes. <laughs> he, the funny thing is, he's only acti- asking for three thousand rubles. Yeah. Well, and what it, is it, that? 
it's probably it's like twenty five cents now, isn't it? I mean, it's not much. So, what do you got to lose? I, I don't know, man. I think I might send this guy three thousand rubles or the or the cash equivalent, the U.S. cash equivalent of three thousand rubles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. All right. That's another good one. Well, again, thanks to everyone who sends in these Catch of the Days. We appreciate it. And, of course, we have a lot of fun with it. If you have one you would like us to consider for the show, you can send it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Horn. He is the chief marketing officer at an organization called Pindrop. And our conversation focuses on voice authentication. Here's my conversation with Mark Horn. We've been in the, in the voice business for a while, and we really wanted to understand kind of perspectives of, of different folks to really understand, like, what, what's their perspective on voice and using it? And so there were a couple of, of really interesting uh, kind of key points of it. Um, of those folks that we surveyed, 71% believed that it would be extremely helpful or very helpful to put voice-enabled parental controls on streaming services uh, to protect kids. So if I think about like the use of voice, everyone said nearly 50% of people said they use voice technology. And on a daily basis. And one of the things they wanted to do is to add that layer of security. So as we started diving into it, a lot of it was around that. Another interesting data point, if if we look at at sort of access to things like our cars, right? Where does voice play in? Nearly 70% of those surveys believe that securely unlocking their vehicle and starting it using only their voice would be extremely helpful in day-to-day lives. 54% 54% of all individuals surveyed believe that accessing their bank accounts at the ATM using only their voice would be extremely helpful. Hmm. So as you start looking at it, right, voice is, is one of those really critical factors that, that we all take with us and, and is always with us, right? It's not like we forget our car keys or we forget our PIN code or passwords. Uh, voice is one of those critical things that we can use to simplify our experiences Um, and provide easier access. When we asked folks about authentication, over a third of them surveyed that they'd actually had their bank card stolen at some point in time. So if you think about losing information, losing your bank card, a card and pin is is one of those critical pieces. And so you can't really lose your voice. 55% of the individuals we surveyed got stressed out by digital identity verification, right? They didn't like Mm. all the CAPTCHAs, all the multi-factor authentication, like became really challenging for a lot of folks. KBAs were were these knowledge-based authentication questions were one of the biggest kind of detractors from a positive experience. So there's just a couple of of sort of really interesting things. When, When we asked about reputation, the concept of knowledge-based questions actually drove 55% of people said they felt frustrated because of it. 57% said annoyed. Very few people felt confident in the security when, when using some of that. So voice is a, a great technology to use. Uh, this survey showed that. And then when we look at where, where it creates challenges for people, um, it, it's around you know alternatives with KBAs. Yeah. 
Let's dig into some of the details here. I mean, I, I suppose a question I have is, you know, what happens if you do lose your voice? If you have a cold or, you know, you've been out having a good time the night before and your your throat is scratchy and sore, what happens then? Yeah, so a great question there. Um, one of the things we've worked really hard at as a company, voice is our is our core business. Lots of energy on research. Um, and so interestingly, if you think about like how your voice changes over time, your core voice is very similar. There are some nuances around it that that change. Um, aging is one of those. And so the the models that we built are actually able over time to to discern, you know, whether whether you've had a tough night the night before. Um, does it work 100% of the time? No, but once you're in the 90 plus percent range, it works really well. Can you walk me through how it would work? I mean, if if you're using your voice to log into something, let's say a, a bank ATM or, or something like that, what would be the interaction between the user and the device? Yeah, I, I love that question. So it, it happens in two parts, right? The, the first piece is what we call an enrollment process. Um, and that's the first time you use it, right? Where you actually enroll your voice as part of it. And, and that's where... You know, you you work through all of those. How do I how do I take my voice? How do I capture? And that just happens for us in a natural interaction. And someone validates, yep, this is Mark. We're going to enroll that voice. Once that happens, now every time I walk up to the ATM, as an example, that ATM could have a microphone in it, and I just begin to speak. And as soon as I start speaking. The system is listening for my voice and mapping my voice to the account, verifying that it's my voice and allowing me to go forward. So after you've done the quick enrollment, every time you come back, right, it uses your voice and, and you don't have to do anything else. So it becomes perfectly seamless. And for the ATM example, um, we, we believe that becomes touchless as well. So you can ask for the things that you want to have done and uh, not have to actually have any physical contact with the device. Correct. Yeah. Do you find that that folks are are a bit skeptical of this? I mean, I, I think anyone who's been through a a, um, a phone tree that isn't working as well as you would like it to, I think it's one of those things where you know having a bad experience can really sour you to the technology overall. Yeah, and, and I think. I think the technology has advanced significantly. One of one of the few potential positives that come out of COVID is for a lot of, of call centers, they've invested significantly in voice technology to create a better customer experience, right? And it started out of necessity. When they couldn't handle the call volumes, they really looked to provide voice technology to allow customers to self-serve. And self-service is terrific. You can do that through a phone tree. You can do that through natural voice. Um, but it does require authentication. I really do have to validate this really is Mark before I allow a transaction to happen. So the authentication technology around voice is that critical unlock to enable people to do that. You can allow people through through a voice-enabled IVR to do a lot of things when you have high confidence it really is the correct person who's authorized to perform those transactions. To what degree do you envision this being, uh, you know, a, a one and only authentication method? And, and 
to what degree would it be one of many, either a primary or a second factor for folks who wanted a, a, that extra layer? So I, I think it gets really interesting. I think as people are starting with it, we're starting it to be see as a factor in a combination of, of uses, right? Um, you're always going to have, as you deploy new technology, they're always going to have fallbacks. You're always, you know, they're always going to keep your mother's brother's dog's uncle's name on file and ask you that question as a knowledge-based question in case something goes wrong. Where I think it gets really interesting is I look at the, at where customer experience goes in the future. And I think about all of the interactions I, as a, as a consumer might have with my financial institution. Um, I might go to an ATM. I might go into a branch. I might go to a drive-through. I might use a mobile device. I might use my laptop. I might call the call center. And when you step back and look at all of those different interaction points, voice is the single application that works across all of those from the lead factor. The ATM today is is card and you know chip and pin, mm. right? The the mobile app is probably your face because you've got Face ID turned on. Mm-hmm. Your laptop is username and password, right? When you call into the IVR, it's your account number and a different pin. The one consistent ubiquitous tool across all of those, because all of those interactions already have microphones in them, is your voice. Mm-hmm. And so as we start talking to folks, it is quickly becoming one of the preferred authentication methods, right? Whereas they're starting with voice to learn how it works, you quickly see them saying, hang on, I can create a way better experience by using a single authentication method. It makes my customer's life so much easier. I don't have to remember what was the four-digit pin I set on my phone for that account versus... What was my login and password versus my chip and pin? Now I can use voice as that single authentication method across all those interactions. You know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation about uh, potentially using this for uh, children, for being able to con- you know, have parental controls and things like that. It strikes me that uh, it could be a really good application there because you know, kids aren't particularly good at remembering things like passwords or pins. Uh, well, I think it's I think it's twofold, right? One is one is kids aren't great at remembering that, and then secondly, um, kids probably shouldn't be doing certain things. So we did a about uh, twelve months ago. We launched a project with TiVo that allows you to use your voice to prevent people from watching certain content on streaming TVs, hmm. right? As a perfect example. So now your voice unlocks particular movies that kids shouldn't watch, right? I've got two kids and I tell you what, they know all the passwords and they've figured out how to circumvent every protection scheme going. Um, (laughs) And so being able to lock that down with my voice is one great application. And then giving kids, you know, where they do have permission to do things, right? That makes it much simpler as well. What about, you know, edge case people like me uh, for whom there are hundreds of hours of high quality recordings of my voice in the public domain? Uh, is this something that we would have to have extra concern about? Um, well, if pin drop didn't exist, yes. So <laughs> and I and I say that sort of tongue in cheek um, when the, the Anthony Baudet movie came out. 
the, the folks from Wired actually came to us and said, hey, can you help us find the synthetic audio that was in the movie, right? One of the, one of the misnomers about the movie is they actually created fake audio um, to fill in some of the gaps where mm-hmm. they just didn't have content for it. We actually ran the entire two-hour movie through our analytics engines and found the 53 seconds. Not only did we find the 53 seconds that were synthetic audio, we were able to tell them what the, what the technology was that was used for synthetic audio. We believe synthetic audio has, has really positive use cases. We've seen you know, Val Kilmer, you know, Top Gun actor, right, who lost his voice due to throat cancer, has actually created a synthetic voice to bring voice back. So I don't want to say, you know, deep fakes are always bad. They're great for filling in gaps in movies. They're great for people like Val Kilmer, um, but they can be used for fraud. And and there are technologies as we start to see commoditization of technology, like you can you can create a deep fake of of yourself and plenty of other people just based on the audio content that's available on the web. Um, we've worked hard to develop that, the ability to detect deepfakes, to prevent that from happening. I see. Where do you suppose we're headed with this then? I suppose that you and your colleagues are, are envisioning a, a future where this is uh, much more mainstream than it is right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, I actually envision a world where as a consumer, right, and, and, and I always start with that consumer – how do I make my daily experience better, right? As I think about all the interactions I have with technology throughout the day, where just using my voice would make it more natural, but they are transactions that require security. If I think about where where the iPhone evolved, right? When the iPhone first came out, they didn't have the concept of, of identity of who was using it. And your best two apps were that... Uh, that lighter app, right, that you see everyone using at concerts now. And I think there was a drink of beer (laughs) app. Um, But once you were able to identify who the user was with high confidence, you started to see mobile banking apps come out. I think voice takes that to the next level. As we start to see refrigerators come out that that are smart and allow you to order stuff from uh, Grubhub and Uber Eats and all of those applications, right? You look at that and you say, okay, well, how do I how do I provide a level of authentication so that just anyone can't show up and, and perform those transactions? So I do see it becoming much more ubiquitous across all of these different touch points as we unlock new opportunities for people to have to have much more, you know, to simplify people's lives and create better experiences, which ultimately creates brand preference. I think that's one of the things that that came out of our survey as well is like, how do you begin to look at brand preference? How do you make decisions based on better user experience, better overall brand experience? And how do you choose brands over another? So I do think we're going to see more people moving in this direction. And I think those people are going to win out because experience matters so much. Joe, what do you think? Interesting interview, Dave. Uh, 71% would like voice-enabled parental controls on streaming services. Mm. I think this is a perfect use case for voice authentication. Yeah. 
you know, because if you're going to watch something ad- that's adult in nature, right? Uh, you know, like uh, I don't know, uh, maybe uh, one of Keanu Reeves' new movies, <laughs> or something from the '70s with the Landers sisters, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you don't want your kids watching that, right? Your your device could say, "Hey, is this you?" And you go, "Yeah, this is me," and then it authenticates you. But if your kid goes, "Yeah, it's me," <laughs> nope, <laughs> right? Sorry, exactly. Billy, right? Uh, 68% think using their voice at an ATM would be helpful. I am not in that group, Dave. How come? I, I don't know. I, um, I like the chip and pin s- solution that we have. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I don't know why I don't like the, the solution. I, maybe, you know, maybe if you, if somebody stole my, uh, my ATM card, the first thing I do is cancel it. But let's say I don't know the, uh, you know, I don't know how I feel about this one. Okay. I, I've made my, my case against biometrics for too many too many times in this show, so I'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna do it okay. again. Uh, and I think I'm just gonna have to uh, acquiesce to this that biometrics is the way we're going, right? I yeah. Mean, I've got a fingerprint scanner on my phone. You've got Face ID on your phone. Yep. Um, it, it's just voice print is nothing you know nothing different than that, even though it's immutable. And okay, I said I wasn't gonna do it, but um, <laughs> you just can't help yourself. I can't help myself, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, Mark makes a point about knowledge-based authentication. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowledge-based authentication can be frustrating to use, and it can be very easy to answer the questions correctly if you, when you fill them out, answer them honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the case in point of this I always think of is when Sarah Palin was on the McCain-Palin ticket and her Yahoo email was hacked, not because she had a weak password, but because Yahoo used knowledge-based authentication for a password reset workflow. Oh. And she had answered all those questions honestly, like what high school did you go to? All the information that was necessary to do that was on Wikipedia. Right. What foreign countries can you see from your house? Right. <laughs> go ahead. I think that's a misquote, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Saturday Night Live joke. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Tina Fey did an excellent Sarah Palin, by she the did. way. I mean, they, did, yeah. I saw them on stage together and they were indistinguishable. I couldn't tell who was who. <laughs> okay. I am reassured by what Mark says here that they're building these models that can track you over time or that can match you over time mm. as you age. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's good because I've noticed my voice has aged, uh, changed yeah. rather as I age. Right. Um, it's it's getting a little more gravelly lately. It's not the years, it's the miles. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and voice does work along most platforms we interact with, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're pretty much always talking. And it's right, you can't lose your voice. I mean, it can't be stolen from you. Right. Uh, you know, when we start talking about deep fakes, I think it's fairly easy to spot a voice, uh, a deep fake voice with uh, with an algorithm that is analyzing your voice. Hmm. So I'm I'm not too concerned about that being used as a um, as a vector. I am more concerned about the excellent question that you raised about guys like us mm-hmm. who have tons of audio out there in recording. Yeah. You know, it 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 could be as simple as. Uh, saying something. And my father even mentioned this to me when I started doing these podcasts. Uh, Are you afraid of that? And I'm I'm like, yeah, I kind of am afraid of it. So maybe you and I don't use voice authentication as a a way to authenticate ourselves. Right, right. So it's not a good fit for us. But for somebody who doesn't spend every waking day doing a podcast, like like you do, (laughs) or come in here once a week and do a podcast like I do, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe we don't do it. You just have to be self-aware about what your own vulnerabilities are. Yeah, I think you know, that's important. It's, and it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. So my my uh, mine is not the same as yours. It's not the same as one of our listeners. Yeah, it's called so. risk modeling, threat modeling. You have to do your own threat modeling. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Well, again, our thanks to Mark Horn from Pindrop for joining us. Interesting conversation, and we appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 